Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Now, don't get excited. We're not going to go in depth all, in all 20 verses. Amen? <laughs> Amen. So, uh, but we want, to, want you to turn your Bibles or turn them on to that passage. And our thought for today is really this. Tick-tock, tick-tock, your life is on the clock. Your life is on the clock. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, tick-tock, tick-tock, your life is on the clock. Amen, amen. Now, human beings have been fascinated with time ever since we came into the world. Our fascination with time led to the invention of something called a sundial over 6,000 years ago. The first mechanical clock was invented in the 1300s, and the first fully functioning clock in America was invented by a son of former slaves, Benjamin Banneker, in the early 1750s. But not only that, pop culture has always reflected the human curiosity about time. There are so many famous quotes and sayings that we remember from our childhood and we find ourselves repeating them to our children. Let me just share with you a few of these quotes about time. Benjamin Franklin said this. He said, lost time is never found again. Jeffrey Chaucer said this, time and tide wait for no man. And Mark Twain said this, the fear of death follows from the fear of life. A man who lives fully is prepared to die at any time. And who can forget internet sensation Kimberly Sweet Brown Wilkins? Sweet Brown said, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> Even those creative among us write songs about the elusive nature of time. The Steve Miller band, which I think somehow is a combination between Steve Perry and Scott Miller. I don't <laughs> no, that wouldn't be you, huh? All right. But the Steve Miller band wrote a song about how elusive time can be. They sang these words, time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Now, there is even an ancient anonymous proverb that tells us of our desire to escape the clutches of time. It says this, the clock of life is wound but once and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. Now is the only time you own. Live, love, toil with a will. Place no faith in tomorrow for the clock may then be still. So, as we address this third chapter of Ecclesiastes, 
It's important that we clear up what some might uh, have as a misconception about this often quoted passage. Most of us, whether Christian or not, might agree that these words of Solomon's are the most quoted in regards to time. He says this, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted a time to kill and a time to heal a time to break down and a time to build up a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. But most of the time, when we quote or hear this passage quoted, it might be in reference to the belief that somehow Solomon is talking about humanity resigning ourselves to the fact that an arbitrary deity or God is manipulating human affairs for his own pleasure. And therefore, as powerless creatures, we must resign ourselves to fate at a funeral. We often hear this. Well, the Bible says there's a time to die. Now, this is true. We just read it, but we must think that life is only about accepting the inevitability of death. Is that all that makes life worth living? The fact that we must die. Is that all we have to hope for? Many of us have heard our parents say, There's a time to speak and a time to keep silent. If life is merely about knowing somehow when to talk and when to shut up, does that knowledge make life worth living? In effect, this is a misconception about this passage. It is not about God manipulating life for humanity and thus resigning us all to fate. That really does not make life more meaningful these verses do not speak of divine providence but more they speak of human mortality the preacher here wants us to know that life is composed of joy and sorrow building and destroying as well as living and dying each comes at the proper time. Certainly a different time in different lives, but still each comes. This reminds us that we are all creatures of time. Your life and my life. All of our lives are subject to the clock. We can push the reset button, but time does not stop nor does time repeat. We are reminded that we are indeed creatures of time, not yet able to partake 
of the joys of eternity. In fact, no one can gain true happiness if we do not understand and accept the truth that life is full of changes and sorrow as well as continuity and joy. We must accept our mortality and that we are governed by time. Now that I have you sufficiently depressed, (laughs) you thought you was going to live forever. (laughs) But you find out today that while there's a time to be born, there's also a time to die. As a matter of fact, in Psalms 90, which is a song of Moses, we read these words regarding the inevitability of our own mortality. The writer writes, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. How many people in here today can think of your life when you were teenagers, adults, and it just seemed like being a teenager was just yesterday? Doesn't seem that far away. When we think about graduating high school, it doesn't seem like it's been that long. No matter what you think or how young and fit you may be, no matter how many times you go to the health club, do not leave here today without realizing and knowing this one truth. Like the NFL draft, you are on the clock. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Your life is on the clock. Knowing that we are subject to time, time that does not wait for us to get our act together. We are subject to an impending mortality that may come at any time. The old certainly die, but so do the young. Do I have a witness? More and more we see the young making a transition into eternity. I have been to far too many funerals of young people that have been killed by violence in a community. Well, we don't need to see any more young dies needlessly. Therefore, as we gather to celebrate the resurrected Savior, the question is what does the inevitability of our death have to do with the reality of our Lord's life? How do we link the truth that we, we must die, but yet Jesus is alive? What does his life mean for me, one who is doomed to die? Let us understand the intent of Solomon in this text. Solomon is not writing to burden us with the reality of our impending doom. On the contrary, he writes to mentor us, to help us gain theological and relationally relate to the realities of our limited existence in time and to help us with our longing for eternity. Solomon knows the human heart. 
how the mouth can speak of readiness while the mind desires a way to exist forever. We talk a good game. We talk about we're ready to go. We talk about we're ready to die. We talk about we want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die to get there. If we cannot live forever, we certainly do not wish to have our work or our lives be forgotten. In fact, in this series, we've described Solomon's depression over life, and now we see his depression over death. Three things that Solomon describes reveal his sense of hopelessness as he searches for meaning. He notes these three things to which we are bound by time in this world. The first thing is that time binds us to insignificance. Everybody say insignificance. If there is one true desire in the human condition, it is the desire to be significant. Now, nobody here going to admit that because we, we just good Christians, you know. We don't, we don't want to admit that we desire to be significant. But it is evident when we speak. Wanting people to know that we have much to contribute, even if we really don't know what we're talking about. We still want the listener to remember us, perhaps even elevating us to significance, our desire To be significant shows up on our business card and the prominent manner in which we talk about the title that we possess. But listen, there is one place that we are almost all reveal the desire for significance. And that place is our work. We want our work to matter. From the cashier to the CEO. From the bench player to the baller. From the pew sitter to the pastor. We want our work to matter. Yet Solomon begins his mentoring of his readers with a bold question. He asks this question. He says, what gain has the worker from all of his toil? What good really comes from all your labor in the end? You and your work will fade into insignificance because you, my brother and sister, are subject to time. Nothing you do will last forever. Now, somebody said this. What about the light bulb? Certainly, Thomas Edison will be remembered forever. And I came to tell you, no, he won't. Because there is no need for light In eternity, if you are in hell, there's nothing but darkness, flames, but no light. If you are in heaven, then the glory of God will fill the place with light. You won't see light bulbs in heaven. You won't get the glory and somebody say, could you turn that light on over there? It's a little dark. The brilliance of God's glory He who said, let there be light, and there was light. So we are insignificant in the long run. Our work will not be remembered. Mahatma Gandhi said this regarding insignificance. He said, whatever you do will be insignificant, but it is very important that you do it. 
Gandhi understood the insignificance of life, but he also understood that it was still important to do what you are supposed to do. Edison was supposed to invent, invent the light bulb even though it will not last forever and is insignificant when you juxtapose it, when you place it up against eternity. So what are we saying? We're saying fulfill your dream, but do not make an idol of your dream because it really won't last. Fulfill your goals, but do not make idols of your goals because at the end of the day, your goals will not last. Years and years after you're gone, nobody will remember that goal list that you scribbled on a napkin. But it doesn't mean that you aren't to do what it is that you're supposed to do. Now, it is tough to wrap our minds around this, so here's what the preacher mentor says to us. He says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. The preacher, mentor, places humans next to the eternal God and says we can be proud of all of our work, but in the end, none of our work, no matter how hard we try, even though we long for eternity, none of our labor will reveal to us what God has done from beginning to end. We are insignificant next to God. He is the only alpha and omega. You can wear your frat letters, your sorority letters. You can be an AKA, a Delta you can be an Omega Sci-Fi. You can be any of these Greek organizations. But let me tell you this. There's still only one. Right. Alpha Amen. and Omega. Amen. I wish I had a few witnesses here. The first and the last, the beginning and the end, there's still just one. So what do we do with this insignificance? The preacher says this in verse 12. He says, I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Here's what you do. Accept your worldly pleasure and labor as free gifts from God because still you are bound by time. Your gift will not last forever. Your pleasure will not last forever. We are still insignificant when you measure us against God and against time. Now, what's the second thing that, that he wants us to get? It's this. Injustice resides where we least expect it. In our search for meaning, instead of finding something that makes all of this make sense, we find injustice. Just a glance at our world today, and we find so many examples of injustice. Social media would be boring if people did not daily post or comment on injustices real and perceived. Who knew that Scripture says that those who experience time 
also experience injustice. The world, my brothers and sisters, is full of injustice. Now, I'm going to let that marinate for a minute because some of us act surprised when we see injustice. But Solomon just doesn't acknowledge that injustice exists. That would be far too easy for us. We can accept that injustice exists in the world, but what really is troubling to the human mind is that when we find injustice in the place where justice ought to be. Now watch this. Go to verse 16. Our preacher mentor writes these words. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. The preacher teacher says that in the halls of justice, there is injustice and wickedness. And even in the place of righteousness, we find wickedness. Let me make this plain for you today. We go to court looking for justice, and sometimes we find injustice and wickedness in the court. We come to church expecting it to be a place where the righteous reside. And every now and then, we find wickedness in the place of the righteous. Oh, ain't nobody going to say amen on that one. Eh? Y'all got y'all Easter best on the day. So it's right. <laughs> watch this. How are we to survive this dilemma? We are shocked by this today. We are at our wits end and we don't have a clue how to move forward because the presence of injustice where there should be justice and the reality of wickedness where there should be righteousness has thrown us for a loop. It has made us disappointed with the world, disgusted with people, depressed with our lives, and sometimes it even leads us to disgrace. This is too much, too much to handle, too much to bear. Our minds are on overload, and if you catch us on the right day, we might say or do anything. The preacher sends a mentor-like warning so that we will not be surprised, and yet we will still act as if we cannot believe what we just saw. We will come into the church and can't believe that somebody would act ugly in the church. I I can't believe that. Did you hear what they said? In the church. That's like going to the hospital and not expecting to see any sick people. This is God's hospital. We've got some sick people in here. And and truth be told, some of us are sicker than others. But keep on living. You might not need the emergency room today. You might be in outpatient therapy today. But if you keep on living, one day you might need the emergency room. So time is filled with injustice. The third and final thing that the preacher tells us is that death is inevitable. Our preacher mentor is not done with those of us who live in the bonds of time. He is clear 
that for all that we do, we cannot escape the very real truth that death comes for us all. Often when we least expect it, death arrives in spite of the fact that we beg and plead for more time. Death still comes no matter how bad we want to do over a recount or even a restart. Death still comes no matter how bad we want to do things again. Death still comes. And even though even now death holds the clock and it's ticking. The clock is ticking on our lives. The preacher mentor helps us in verse 18 by speaking this truth. He said, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For whatever happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast. All is vanity. All go to one place. Now watch this. And all are from the dust. And to dust all return. Don't get it twisted, brothers and sisters. We're all going back to the dust. When Adam sinned, God pronounced this judgment in Genesis 3 and 19. He says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Look at somebody and say, as good as you look today, you're going back to the dust. You're going back to the dust. You're going back to the dust. Now, now I know I know by this point you are sufficiently depressed. Who comes to church on Resurrection Sunday and has to hear a message that you're going to die? Preacher, preach about life. Don't tell us we're going to die. I'm not trying to hear that. I'm dressed up today. No matter how we try to fight it, time will lead us to the same place we started, the dust. God wanted us to know that even as the crown jewel of his creation, sin made us no different than the beast of the field. The animals die, and so shall we. So what hope is there? If life is full of insignificance, injustice, and the inevitability of death, then why even live? Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, how we as believers find joy in life. Let me tell you why that when the storms of life are raging, those who love the Lord remain anchored. Let me tell you, dear brother or sister, why? When we fall down, we get up. Let me tell you, my friend, why? That in the midst of a dark midnight that we rest easy because we know that joy comes in the morning. Let me tell you, dear heart, why we as believers came here today to celebrate an event over 2,000 years ago. It's all because the tomb was empty. 
We know the death of Christ paid for our sin, but the resurrection of Jesus gave us life beyond the dust. This old body is going back to the ground from whence it came. But thanks be to God that that is not the end. Because he is risen, we too shall live. So if Solomon was here today, he might say something like this. I looked and I saw just how insignificant I was until I saw what Jesus did on Calvary, and I knew how precious I am in his sight. Solomon might say, yes, I found injustice residing in the place of justice, but I looked and I saw that there was another judge on the bench. I found wickedness living in the house of the righteousness, and wickedness was paying no rent, but I'm glad that there was another tenant in the house. Solomon might say, I felt death creeping up on me. But then I turned around and I saw two more beings, one named goodness and the other named mercy. And I remember what my daddy told me about the Lord. He said in the 23rd Psalm, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm excited since I've been invited to go and spend eternity with Jesus. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I know that I know that I know that one day I will be with him. I will be with him in eternity because he lives, because he gave his life for my sin, because he loved me in a way where I could not love myself, because he gave me his shed blood. Because he took the pain. Because he suffered. So that by his stripes. Oh, I wish I had two or three witnesses. By his stripes, I would be made whole. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. So I tell you today. That though death is inevitable. Don't be discouraged. Don't be depressed. All you need to do is trust Jesus with your heart and your life. And if you trust him today, I promise you that he will be good for his word. He will not leave you disappointed. He will not leave you depressed. He will not leave you discouraged. But he will give you a joy that no other joy can match. He will give you a peace that goes beyond all understanding. And while your life is on the clock, God has eternity waiting for those who believe. Come on, give the Lord some praise in here today.